bringing you the latest in tax credit news. This is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. The legislative challenges have been significant. We very much need the legislation. we got to produce housing. We're still in a very volatile industry. It's a challenging atmosphere for almost anyone. We can't get all these mixed signals and messages. If he doesn't have a bipartisan bill, nothing's going to happen. Alternative energy is still very expensive. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, April 5th, 2011. This week, we have a lot of ground to cover. I will start with an update on the ongoing federal budget negotiations. I'll also discuss new guidance, guidance from the IRS, for owners of both renewable energy projects as well as owners of other property that might qualify for 100% bonus depreciation. Then I have a quick update on tax patent legislation as well as an upcoming congressional hearings of note to our listeners. Then I'm going to move to historic tax credit news, where there are a number of big headlines this week. First, I'll discuss the U.S. Court of Appeals reversal, yes, reversal, of the federal tax court ruling in the Virginia Historic Tax Credit Fund case. Then, I'll touch base on the IRS's notice that they were going to appeal the decision in the historic Boardwalk Hall case, also an historic tax credit case. And last, but not least, I'll share some insights from the National Park Service's annual report about the historic tax credit in 2010. Turning to new market tax credit news, I have an update about an upcoming hearing of the Ways and Means Human Resources Subcommittee that may be of interest to the new market tax credit community. I'll also share an invitation for new market tax credit applications recently published by the City of Indianapolis. And then, turning to local housing tax credit matters, I have a somewhat belated announcement of the release of an update to the IRS's Form 8823 guide. I'll also discuss recent developments in the national debate over federal housing finance reform. And finally, in our renewable energy discussion, I'll examine a study by the Bipartisan Policy Center that analyzes the effectiveness of tax credits as a way to incentivize the development of wind and solar projects. So if you're ready, let's get started. In general tax credit news, we start with a budget update. At the time of this recording, lawmakers are still deadlocked in their negotiations over spending levels for the remainder of fiscal year 2011. The current continuing resolution that is funding the federal government is set to expire in just a few days, on Friday, April 8th. House Speaker John Boehner said over the weekend that while no compromise had yet been reached with Democratic leaders, it was time for Congress to, quote, get moving. The newspaper, The Hill, reports that Boehner also signaled that the time has come to move to the next battlefield in the spending wars. Some Republicans have indicated willingness to compromise on the 2011 budget, in part so they can move on to larger budget issues, not the least of which is an upcoming vote to increase the debt ceiling and setting federal spending levels for fiscal year 2012. More specifically, House Budget Committee Chairman Paul Ryan, is releasing today, Tuesday, a House Fiscal Year 2012 budget plan. That plan is expected to call for up to $6 trillion in cuts over the next 10 years. We'll give more update on that proposal 
next week in our Tax Credit Tuesday podcast. Turning to bonus depreciation guidance, last week the Internal Revenue Service released guidance on the 100% bonus depreciation provision from the Tax Relief, Unemployment Insurance Reauthorization, and Job Creation Act of 2010. The information provided in the revenue procedure is expected to be welcome guidance for owners of renewable energy projects as well as owners of other property that qualifies, namely personal property and land improvements for long-term tax credit and new market tax credit properties. In Revenue Procedure 2011-26, the IRS explains the eligibility requirements for the 100% depreciation deduction. To qualify, each of the following requirements must be satisfied. The property generally must be eligible for maker's depreciation and have a recovery period of 20 years or less. The property generally must be acquired and placed in service after September 8, 2010 and before January 1, 2012. And thirdly, the original use of the property must commence with the taxpayer. The revenue procedure also provides the method for amending a 2009 tax return to include qualified property. For more information about this topic, I invite you to look out for the May issue of the Novogratz Journal of Tax Credits, where we have an in-depth article. This topic is discussed more specifically in the May installment of The Current, which is a monthly column written for the Novogratz Journal of Tax Credits about renewable energy issues by Forrest Milder of Nixon Peabody. In the meantime, if you have any questions about this information or how it may relate to your renewable energy local housing tax credit, or new market tax credit project, please call my partner, Tony Graponi, at 617-330-1920. Turning to the issue of tax patents, on Wednesday, March 30th, House Judiciary Committee Chairman Lamar Smith introduced a proposal to reform the patent system. The bill is H.R. 1249, the America Events Act. The America Events Act is the House version of legislation passed in the Senate earlier this month that prohibits the patenting of tax strategies. The prospects for H.R. 1249 are uncertain at this time, but we will continue to track the bill and report on any progress in future podcasts. A copy of the bill can be found, yes you guessed it, at www.novaco.com. Just look under the Hot Topics tab. Turning to a hearing, a recent hearing, the government affairs law firm Williamsman Jensen in their recent Washington update, noted that the Senate Finance Committee held another hearing on tax reform issues, this hearing focusing on tax incentives. Chairman Max Baucus asserted that the tax code should be simplified, and he suggested that the tax bias towards debt may have contributed to the financial crisis. Ranking member Orrin Hatch suggested that the tax code should be restructured to be more rational and that the entire tax system must be reformed, not just the corporate tax system. The firm Williams & Jensen, in their report, also noted that one point worth paying particular attention to was a question raised by Chairman Baucus. He asked whether there are entities taxed on a pass-through basis, such as LLCs and subject S corporations, that are as large as C corporations. The question follows a line raised by Treasury Secretary Timothy Geithner that at least implies that tax policy should consider whether some large pass-throughs should be taxed more like C-corporations. And then in upcoming hearings, we'd like to note that on Wednesday, April 6, 2011, 
there's a joint committee on taxation meeting. And at this meeting, which is, which is going to be chaired by Dave Camp and Vice Chair Max Bacchus, this hearing by the Joint Committee on Taxation will be a roundtable discussion on ideas for reforming the U.S. Internal Revenue Code. The two invited guests are Honorable James A. Baker III, who is Treasury Secretary during the Tax Reform Act of 1986, and former Congressman Dick Ephart, who was a leading advocate of tax reform prior to the Tax Reform Act of 1986. Once again, that meeting is on Wednesday, April 6, 2011. That's tomorrow. In historic tax credit news, last week, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit reversed, yes, reversed, the December 2009 U.S. tax credit opinion in the case of Virginia Historic Tax Credit Fund versus the IRS. The District Court of Appeals ruled that a disguised sale of otherwise allocable state tax credits had occurred. Now, this reversal could have significance for tax credit transactions well beyond those involving allocable state historic tax credits. However, there are numerous factors to consider before indicting all tax credit transactions. So here are some of my initial, emphasis on initial, thoughts on the case. First, I think the tax credit community should draw a distinction between state tax credits and federal tax credits regarding the definition of property. In ruling that a disguised sale occurred, the court looked to Section 707 of the Internal Revenue Code. In order for that section to apply, tax credits must be property. The Court of Appeals concluded that the state tax credits were property in the case at hand. Now, this does not mean, per se, that federal tax credits are property or, necessarily, that all state tax credits are property. I also think it's important to assess the period of time that an investor is anticipated to be a member of the partnership. The longer, the better. Because entrepreneurial risk is involved, the longer a partner is a partner in a partnership. And this helps rebut the argument that a disguised sale has occurred. Another consideration is the degree to which some cash flow will be available to the tax credit investor. And this would include cash available from operations or sale, as well as cash on liquidation. Again, the, lo- the more cash a partner is expected to receive, the more likely they are to be treated as a partner and not to be a disguised sale. There is also the question of the amount of elapsed time between the capital contribution and the allocation of tax credits. If the time period is more than two years, then there is no presumption, albeit rebuttable, that a sale occurred. Generally speaking, I think that textbook or prototype federal tax credit transactions should generally not be called into question. Similarly, regarding state tax credit transactions, I don't expect that the vast majority of multi-year state monopolizing tax credit transactions will be challenged. Rather, it seems that the universe of transactions called into serious question are state tax credits allocated, yes, allocated, not certificated, allocated within two years of the capital contribution, particularly if the state tax credit investor has strong tax credit guarantees, no expectation of cash flow, and is in the transaction for well less than two years. 
In its ruling, the court notes that the partnership status of the investors in the funds was transitory in nature. Now, these are just a few of my initial thoughts on the ruling. Clearly, this is a significant ruling that is expected to have an adverse impact. It's just a question of how adverse. However, I would also caution the tax credit community not to panic. But you don't have to just take my word for it. Other industry experts will be discussing their reactions to the appeals court's ruling this week at the National Historic Tax Credit Conference. The conference is going to be held on Thursday and Friday, April 7th and 8th in Cleveland, Ohio. And it is not too late to register. We do have over 200 participants so far, but we'd welcome more. To join us in Cleveland, please go to www.novaco.com backslash events or simply call 415-356-7970. Nova Graduate Company is also planning a webcast, a webcast to discuss the case in detail and highlight the impact that this case may have on other state tax credits as well as federal tax credits. This webinar is scheduled for, for April 13th and will be led by my partner, Rob Tessman. Please stay tuned for more details. In other historic tax credit litigation news, last week the Internal Revenue Service filed a notice to appeal the U.S. tax court decision in the historic Boardwalk Hall LLC case. The historic Boardwalk Hall case was the first tax court case to focus squarely on many of the federal historic tax credit legal structuring issues that have been the subject of IRS audits during the past few years. While the issues discussed in the case echo, emphasis on echo, many of the themes discussed in the Virginia Historic Tax Credit Fund case, the Boardwalk Hall case provides guidance in the context of a federal rather than a state historic tax credit transaction and does not deal with the definition of tax credits as property. The IRS's appeal will go to the Third Circuit Court of Appeals. This development will also be discussed at our conference this week in Cleveland. Next, we turn to the National Park Service's 2010 Annual Report and Statistical Analysis. The National Park Service, or NPS, has released its annual report for fiscal year 2010 on the Historic Tax Credit Program. The report includes information about the program's use and performance. According to the Park Service, or NPS, in 2010, the historic tax credit spurred $3.42 billion in new rehabilitation work. This work created more than 41,000 jobs and 5,500 low- and moderate-low-income housing units. Along with the annual report, NPS this year also released a statistical report and analysis for fiscal year 2010. The statistical report provides a more detailed analysis of the program, including state-by-state projectivity and program trends over time. Both reports are available online at www.historictaxcredits.com. In new market tax credit news, on March 29th, Congressman Jeff Davis, Chairman of the Ways and Means Human Research Subcommittee, announced a hearing on duplication in welfare and related programs under the jurisdiction of his subcommittee. The statement announcing the hearing references the GAO's March 2011 report, a report to Congress, that we discussed in the March 15th Tax Credit Tuesday podcast. Now, in case you missed that podcast, the GAO report was meant to identify overlapping federal programs in an effort to reveal opportunities to reduce duplication. The report covered a wide variety of programs, 
What we're focused on here is one comment that includes a suggestion originally raised by the GAO in January of 2010 that relates to the new market tax credit. The suggestion is that Congress consider converting the new market tax credit to a cash grant program with the intention of making additional funds available to businesses by doing this conversion. Now, the Novogratic New Market Tax Credit Working Group opposes the suggestion and disagrees with the report's analysis and considerations in suggesting converting the New Market Tax Credit to a cash grant program. As such, the group has drafted and submitted written comments to the committee for the hearing record. The New Market Tax Credit Working Group has also submitted comments to the GAO in response to their study. This hearing is scheduled to take place today, April 5th at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. I will report next week in the April 12th podcast about any notable developments that may arise from the hearing. So, stay tuned. In local New Market Tax Credit news, the City of Indianapolis is seeking applications for the New Market Tax Credit program. Specifically, the City says it's looking for investment projects with strong community impact in underserved areas that will help revitalize the neighborhoods involved and produce benefits for low-income residents. As many of our listeners may know, on February 24th, the CD5 fund allocated $32 million of New Market Tax Credit Authority to the City of Indianapolis to award to qualified borrowers. The Department of Metropolitan Development is accepting applications for projects in central city neighborhoods that have most of their funding in place. For projects to be considered, they must complete applications forms and submit them by April 15th. That's a very short period of time. April 15th is the due date. Projects must have a minimum total development cost of $5 million and must have existing financing commitments. That's existing financing commitments for at least 80% of total development costs. Priority will be given to projects that can close quickly. For more information or for an application, contact George Courtney at 317-327-5854 or Rick May at 317-327-3701. You can also contact my partner, Tom Bosha, in our Cleveland, Ohio office. In low-income housing tax credit news, on March 25th, the IRS released an updated version of its guide for completing Form 8823. The guide presents standardized operational definitions for the non-compliance categories that are listed on Form 8823. The guide is intended to provide consistent interpretation across states and consistent application of Internal Revenue Code Section 42 requirements. And then most importantly, consistent reporting of non-compliance. A review of the changes that have been made in the most recent version of the Form 8823 will be presented in the May issue of the Novogratz Journal of Tax Credits. For an analysis of the new 8823 guide, you can also attend, in person, the Novogratz & Company's LIHTC Property Compliance Workshop on May 19th and 20th in New Orleans. There's plenty of time to register. But if you can't wait until May, just call my partner, Jim Kroger. He can be reached at 415-356-8000, or you can send him questions by email to jim.kroger, K-R-O-G-E-R, at novaco.com. Turning to housing finance reform, on March 28th, the National Council of State Housing Agencies joined several other major housing and banking trade organizations to release a set of, quote, principles for restoring stability 
to the nation's housing finance system. In a statement on its blog, NCSHA said it believes the set of principles is significant because it reflects an industry consensus on the importance of a strong government role and a commitment to government support for affordable housing, financing, for home ownership, and rental housing in all parts of the country. The statement also says that government support through various insurance and guarantee mechanisms is especially important to facilitate long-term fixed-rate mortgages, affordable financing for low- and moderate-income borrowers, and for financing rental housing in all parts of the country, including rural areas. The groups that developed and signed the statement distributed it to key congressional and administrative offices last week. In related news, last week on March 31st, the Capital Markets and Government-Sponsored Enterprises Subcommittee, which is chaired by Congressman Scott Garrett, convened for a hearing about Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. At a press conference on March 30th, the day before, Financial Services Committee members announced the introduction of the eight bills that would be the focus and were the focus of the subcommittee hearing. The bills would, and here are the eight, one, eliminate Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac's affordable housing goals, two, increase the guarantee fees that GSEs, government-sponsored enterprises, which include Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, charge on mortgages they purchase and securitize over two years to eliminate the difference between the private market and the GSEs. Three, prohibit the exemption of GSE securities from the risk retention requirements of the Dodd-Frank Financial Reform Law. Four, prohibit Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac from engaging in any new activities or businesses. Five, cap Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac loan portfolios and require the GSEs to reduce them to $250 billion over five years. Six, suspend current GSE employee compensation packages and establish a compensation system that's consistent with other senior executives in the federal government. Seven, require the GSE Inspector General to report to Congress on a regular basis on the GSE's liabilities, risk, executive pay, loss mitigation efforts, and loan portfolios. And number eight, require the GSEs to seek Treasury approval for any new debt issuance. Copies of these bills and information from last week's hearing can be found online at www.novoco.com slash hottopics. Simply select the LHTC tab and then click on the legislation or hearings link under the heading GSE Reform. Turning to Renewable Energy Tax Credit news, a study released on March 25th by the Bipartisan Policy Center, BPC, suggests that there are significant opportunities to improve the efficiency of existing renewable energy tax incentives. As part of this study, BPC commissioned Bloomberg's New Energy Finance to compare the financing costs of cash grants to tax credits and to assess how effectively the tax-based system was leveraging taxpayer resources. The study found that although federal tax policies have been extremely important in growing the renewable energy industry, these policies are inadequate to support the renewable energy as it scales for two reasons. First, the stop-start cycle of investment attributable to extensions and expiration of tax incentives and cash grant programs undermines certainty for investors. And second, the structural deficiencies of tax-based incentives, i.e. limited capital pool and expensive financing costs, are inefficient. 
Now, the report contains a number of suggestions regarding how to make tax subsidies more effective, including creating long-term predictability and expanding the pool of investors. The report also notes that Bloomberg New Energy Finance concluded that cash grants were more efficient than tax credits in financing renewable energy. We at Novogratic are reviewing that conclusion and have found several discrepancies, discrepancies that need further analysis. We're not yet persuaded by their analysis, and we'll provide a more detailed analysis in a future podcast. In the meantime, a copy of the report can be found online at www.bipartisanpolicy.org or www.energytaxcredits.com. Turning to hydropower, a piece of legislation introduced last month would increase the amount of production tax credits available to hydroelectric projects. Senator Lisa Murkowski introduced S631, the Hydropower Renewable Energy Development Act. S631 would ensure that hydroelectric power is treated as renewable energy. It would extend the production tax credit to hydroelectric facilities, and it would provide a five-year accelerated depreciation period for equipment that produces electricity from marine renewables and hydropower. Facilities placed in service after August 2005 and before January 1, 2014 would qualify for the production tax credit. They would also be able to claim the credit during a 10-year period, beginning on the date that qualifying improvements or additions to capacity are placed in service. Additionally, property placed in service after the passage of the bill would qualify for a five-year accelerated depreciation period. Upon introduction, you probably guessed it, Senate Bill 631 was referred to the Senate Finance Committee. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. Please join me again next week for another edition of Tax Credit Tuesday, wherein next week we will discuss the impact that the House Budget Chairman Ryan's budget bill would have on the long-term housing tax credit, historic tax credit, renewable energy tax credits, and new market tax credits. And, more broadly, what it means for the future of tax reform. This is Michael Novogratik, and I'll be back next Tuesday. Thanks for listening.